God and our Father, Lord, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that in your love for us, you have chosen to reveal to us what we need to know to be reconciled to our Creator. We thank you that we have a great high priest. We thank you that we have an intercessor, an intermediator between sinful man and a holy and perfect and righteous God. Lord, we are eternally grateful to you. And we thank you in your holy name. Amen. If you would turn with me in, in your copy of, of God's Word to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Uh, my, my hope today is, is to offer part one of, of really two parts of a sermon. In fact, as I wrote this sermon this week, it was one sermon. And sometimes I, I have this kind of a, a heft. I kind of hold it like this and say, well, this is just too much for one sermon. Believe it or not, I do that. Some of you don't believe I actually do that, but I do. But I want to begin with asking you this question, pose this question to you. What beliefs, what convictions do you hold that you use to measure your own righteousness or the righteousness of others? Or maybe more specifically, what rules or rituals do you observe in addition to the Word of God by which you measure your righteousness? Now notice, I did not ask, do you have such standards? I ask you, what are those standards? And so the question really is, because everyone has this kind of thing in our minds, whereby we, we assess our own righteousness and, and the righteousness of others, we need to ask pointedly and carefully of ourselves, what's the source of those convictions? What's the source of those standards? I'm going to assume up front that you're like me. That you do, in fact, have such standards in your mind. And even if only occasionally, even if only inadvertently, you condemn someone else for transgressing rules or rituals or codes of behavior that you have either invented for yourself or you have inherited or adopted from someone else. The Bible often refers to those as traditions of men. Children. Even, you don't have to be a, a, a grown-up, you don't have to be an adult to have developed these kinds of rules. Even in your own home, kids, what kinds of rules, what kind of expectations do you have that you look to your brothers and sisters and think they're not doing right or they're not doing good because they don't do what I want them to do? Even as young children, you can have those kinds of extra rules and regulations. Well, in today's text, we have the voice of Jesus speaking to us as our great high priest. And he speaks to us about matters of cleanliness, corruption, sin. And, and ask the question, where does it come from? Where does unrighteousness come from? Where does corruption come from? Where does defilement come from? 
And he speaks to us today in Mark chapter 6, near the end of the chapter and into the first half of Mark chapter 7, really about the danger of man-made religion. There's a danger. It's not a neutral thing. There's a, man-made religion is dangerous. And he speaks about the destruction to both the souls of the teacher and of the hearer with respect to man-made religion. He speaks of this danger that is both temporal and eternal. We will want to hear both the authority and the severity of our Lord's instruction. He is not neutral. He is not passive when he teaches on these matters. In fact, perhaps it will come to you, our Lord's teaching today may come to you as, as a, in the form of a rebuke. It may come to you in the form that, that, that exhort you to repent of extra-biblical standards, rules, practices that you impose upon yourself or others. He may also speak to you today with words of rescue and deliverance from the bondage of such rules and regulations and rituals that have been added to his word. Some of you may, may come to this and, and as, you, as the Spirit of God gives you understanding, your shoulders may stand up taller and, and broader because burdens have been taken away from you. Perhaps it'll be a mixture of both. But in any case, may we seek earnestly to give our eager ears to hear Christ speak to us as our great high priest. What we're going to see here in the passage is a glimpse of Jesus as the Son of God who is also our high priest. And he is the one who provides for the cleansing of his people. Now we've been observing from the very first verse, and I've said this probably every sermon so far, from the very first verse of Mark's gospel, he has been eager to show to us that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. Jesus is not merely a teacher, he is not a moral guru, he is not just another rabbi, he is not even an exceptionally good rabbi. He is nothing short of divine. He is the Son of God. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that, that there were these Old Testament allusions, these sort of of, of, of not quite explicit, but yet still obvious references to the Old Testament, where Jesus was presented to us as Yahweh, the one who, who literally fed his people in a deserted place. The feeding of the 5,000 had echoes of the feeding of God's people of, by manna coming from heaven in the wilderness. Last week we saw as Jesus walked upon the water, Mark is showing us that he is the same God who delivered his people through the Red Sea, out of the bondage of Egypt, and across the Red Sea on dry ground. He is the final and complete high priest who alone cleanses his people from sin. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different before I read our text this morning. I'm going to read here in a moment Mark chapter 6, 53, and then I'm going to read down to the 23rd verse of Mark 7. But before I do that, I want to read to you two short passages from the book of Exodus. Because I want you to have these passages in your mind as you hear what Mark is saying. And I want you to judge for yourself if Mark is making a bigger theological point than simply recording the events as they transpired. So listen now, this is in Exodus chapter 29. 
the context here is the very detailed instructions to Moses about the building of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings. And, and it can be, I mean, let's be honest, as we read through that, sometimes it might strike us as excruciating in its detail. I mean, from the hems of their garments, the fringes, the colors, the, the tapestries, everything that goes into the building of the temple, or, the, or the, I should say the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it's in that context that we see in Exodus 29, we read these words beginning in verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons. So again, he's calling the priesthood to himself. And listen to what he says. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And listen to this part. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Isn't that striking? Because ordinarily, don't we expect the opposite? Ordinarily, when something is touched by something unclean, both things are now unclean. But this speaks to the very presence of God that what touches his altar, his altar doesn't become defiled. That thing becomes clean. Now listen to the next passage in, in Exodus 30, verse 25. And you shall make, the, make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, you shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become most holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So once again, that which is touched by the holy things becomes holy. That which is unclean becomes clean in the presence of God. Now, that's the backdrop. Do you hear the amazing declaration from God? Anything that touches his altar, anything that touches his priest becomes holy, rather than what we might expect the other way around. I submit to you that Mark is demonstrating in our text today that Jesus is the God who cleanses all who touch him. And that cleansing is total. It touches the whole man, and it's for eternity. So here's, here's the, the, the main thrust of the sermon today. Only the priestly work of the Son of God can cleanse us from inward defilement and corruption. Only the priestly work of Christ can cleanse us from all inward corruption, from all defilement, Neither man's efforts nor man-made religion can cleanse the corruption within, but only add to the corruption and bring harm to others. So the, the two-part sermon has three parts. Today I want to look at, at two, just two things, the true source of corruption and the true source of cleansing. It's a pretty simple outline, true source of corruption and the true source of cleansing. And then next week, we're not going to have time today, I want to raise the question, what if we get that wrong? What are the harms? What's the damage that happens if we get these things wrong? 
if we don't rightly identify the true source of sin and corruption, and if we don't identify the true source of our cleansing, of our healing from such corruption and defilement. So, that's an extended introduction, but here we go with the text. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. And have in your mind, kind of fixed in your mind, the backdrop from Exodus 29 and 30, that it is by the touch of the Holy One that unclean things become holy. Here's the word of God. When they had crossed over, this is Jesus and the twelve, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people, this is he calls the crowd to him again, and said to them, hear me, all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and when he had entered the house and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's consider in the first place the true source of corruption. Now to understand, I think, to, to the sort of the weightiness of this encounter, let's imagine a scenario, hopefully a fantastical one, but let's just imagine we have windows across our, our building here, we can see outside very clearly. What if on an ordinary Sunday like today, all of a sudden you hear sirens and see flashing lights and a whole entourage, a caravan of black SUVs pull up into the parking lot and men in windbreakers with three letters inscribed across the back come busting in and come up to the pulpit and accuse your pastor of breaking all kinds of rules and laws. Now, that would be quite shocking, wouldn't it? Well, that is not necessarily an overstatement of what happens here when the Pharisees approach him publicly. This is a whole entourage coming down from Jerusalem. We haven't seen or heard from the Pharisees since chapter 3, when they began to plot with the Herodians to kill him. And what's happening here is this is a formal delegation coming from Jerusalem. This is the equivalent of the feds showing up and making an accusation. And we saw back in chapter 3 that their official dogma, the official position uh, from Jerusalem was he's doing these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. It's by the power of Satan that he does these things. They recognize it was supernatural, but they were not willing to ascribe to him the power of God. And so from that moment on, anyone who said or believed that Jesus was doing these things as the Son of God, and by the power of God, that was considered misinformation, disinformation. Formally, officially. Well, now they come and they make these charges. They come and they see that Jesus' disciples are sitting in a normal meal and they're eating. And they accuse them of eating with defiled, that is, unwashed hands. Mark tells us that the, that the Jews, that the Pharisees and all the Jews had all kinds of regulations with respect to this outward cleanliness. Now, this had nothing to do with the Pharisees taking a microbiology course down at the local community college and discovering that, that their, their hygiene depended upon this. It had nothing to do with any of that. This was not that they were going to be offended or they were worried about offending their mother when they showed up to the table with dirty fingernails. That wasn't, this wasn't anything like that. They believed that when they went into public places, that the people in these public places brought defilement to them, and especially Gentiles. Now notice what happens in, in Mark chapter 6. Now, as, as an aside here, you, you know that the chapter markers in your Bible are not original to the text. Those are not inspired. They're, they're ordinarily helpful. They help us find things in our Bibles where, where I can tell you to turn to Mark chapter 6 and verse 53, and you can very quickly find what I'm talking about. But sometimes the chapter divisions are not very helpful. And I think this is one of those places. Because if we take Mark chapter 6, 53 to the end, just by itself, it kind of feels like this is just maybe a generic summary statement. It doesn't seem to have a lot of weight to it. And we might even think, well, is this just filler? Or is this just a, a transitional 
paragraph, a transitional phrase. But when we read it together and understand what's going on theologically, I think it makes a lot of sense that this goes with the following chapter. Because Jesus is described here, along with his disciples, as coming out of the boat, people immediately recognize him, and then from all over the place, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they bring the people to him. Now notice, Mark uses a word intentionally. They laid the sick in the marketplaces. Again, that's the place of everyday commerce. Uh, this would be the, the, the town square, the, the local mall, whatever it is. We, we, this is the place where people are, are, are busy about their ordinary vocations. But that's the very place that the Pharisees thought corruption came from. The defilement came from. Now, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what we're told in verse 3. The Pharisees, or chapter 7, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from where? The marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. Again, this has nothing to do with hygiene. This was a very ritualized cleansing. So the Jews had the, the Torah, which was the book of Moses, but then they had a commentary that the rabbis had written, and then by this point there was another commentary written about the commentary. And so there were quite literally hundreds of laws. And if we were to, to print out just, just the section in the law about hand washing, it would be page after page after page after page. Detailed instructions on how you hold your hands, where you, how you make a fist in one and wash with the other, and all those kinds of details. And so the Pharisees come to him and said, your disciples are in sin. And the implication is, because you're their rabbi, that you are in sin. Because they're not holding, they're not walking, they're not observing the tradition of the elders. Mark uses this phrase, marketplace, to draw our attention to really the key issue. The Jews were convinced, the Pharisees were convinced, that their uncleanness, their defile, they didn't deny that, they, that there was a possibility of being unclean or defiled, but what they, they placed the source of it in the world around them, in things, in people. And the spirit of the Pharisee is alive and well today, is it not? Where we look at the world around us and think that's where corruption comes from. That's where defilement comes from. Now sometimes we see this both in secular and in Christian forms. Fundamentalism is, 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 can be secular just as well as it can be religious. And so in the secular world, we see things like cancel culture. Isn't this a form of Phariseeism? It may be completely atheistic in its roots, but it, it rests upon a belief that some measure of corruption or defilement comes from outside of oneself by your associations, by the people that you're around, or by the things that you're around. And the belief is that, one, that another person's actions, or even their ideas, are defiling and corrupting. And you have to, the only way to be clean is to avoid those things. In a sense, to do a ceremonial hand washing on social media and you've been cleansed and absolved of your sin. Right? That's how cancel culture works in the secular world. But it's not, it's not, it's not uh, confined to there, is it? It's alive and well in, in religious circles as well. 
But this, whether it's secular or religious, this kind of fundamentalism says that all of your problems are rooted in something outside yourself. And that the only solution exists where? Inside of you, conveniently. Your problems are external, but the solutions are internal. Isn't that exactly backwards? That's, ex that's 180 degrees opposite of what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that where does corruption come from? Inwardly. Where does the solution come from? Outside of us, by the Spirit of the living God and the work of Christ in us. Romans chapter 12, after giving, spending the first 11 chapters of this wonderful epistle, laying out the, the glories of the gospel from eternity past up to the very present, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Paul's warning us as Christians. He was warning the church in Rome, and he's warning us that we have the temptation ever present before us to be just like the world. In fact, he's not giving that to this. You've heard me say this. He's not saying this is a hypothetical possibility. And if we don't guard ourselves sufficiently as Christians, we might become conformed to the world. No, he's saying this is our starting point. This is the default position. And, and the only remedy for that is the renewing of our minds, the transformation by the renewal of our minds. Now, let's think about the Christian version of this dilemma. We see it in the secular world, but the, the, the Christian version of this spirit of Pharisaism is, is really not all that different. In our zeal to follow and obey God's Word, we can end up adding commands, adding prohibitions that are based on a faulty understanding of the true nature, the true source of our defilement. Sometimes this is formal. It's, it's formal, official religious dogma. Sometimes it's informal, unofficial, unwritten. Let me give you a couple of examples. When we were, the first five years of, of, of our church, in fact, coming up the first Lord's Day in March, will be 14 years since the Lord established GFBC Conroe. In the first five years, we met at a Seventh-day Adventist church, which was, it was, a, it was a wonderful building, but it was quite the interesting relational dynamic with a very legalistic church. In fact, we encountered the legalism before we ever set foot in the building as a church. We had to petition. In fact, their pastor had to formally advocate for us to rent because the congregation was concerned. Once they found out that we had a fellowship meal every week, the congregation, many in the congregation, did not want us to rent the building from them for this reason. They were concerned we would defile their kitchen with our fellowship meal because some of you might bring a pork chop for a fellowship meal. Or have bacon. In fact, we had to get written permission for them to have a coffee pot and a tea urn. Because, according to official SDA dogma, caffeine is a sin. Now, if they're right, how many of us are in trouble? But they're not right. <laughs> Amen? They're not right about the coffee or the bacon. But listen to this, in all seriousness. Much of the Seventh-day Adventist dogma does not come from, the, from your Bible. It comes from a false prophet named Ellen White. And she wrote extensively about all manner of things. 
But this is a quote from their president, President Wilson. I don't even look up if he's still the president or not. This was in my notes. As Seventh-day Adventists, and I'm quoting their president, we have been given a wonderful, well-rounded, scientifically sound health message to share with the world. Is that what your Bible says? That's our message to the world? We have a health message? By sharing this message, we can help people live longer, healthier, and happier lives. An important part of our health message is to avoid the use of stimulants, such as alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Furthermore, it is a spiritual message as well, as this direct but important counsel states, and he quotes Ellen White, tea and coffee drinking is a sin, an injurious indulgence, which, like other evils, injures the soul. These darling idols create an excitement, a morbid action of the nervous system. Do you see what she's saying? If you drink coffee, it injures your soul. Jesus says... Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Literally, it goes into the latrine. Well, that's basic biology, isn't it? But he's also making a very strong theological point. In fact, Mark puts here in parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. Your pulled pork sandwich that you might enjoy here in a little while at lunch does not defile your soul. It enters your body, your body takes whatever nourishment it needs, and the rest is expelled. But this is really no different at all, is it, from the Pharisees and the scribes charging Jesus and his disciples with violating the teaching of the elders. See, Ellen White was considered, even though she's a multi-time discredited false prophet, she's considered an elder. And notice how the authority of the Word of God is displaced, it is dishonored, it is diminished by observing such things, by binding the consciences of other people to such things. What they're saying is the Word of God isn't enough. What they're saying is the Word of God isn't sufficient. They need writings of a 19th century woman who has been repeatedly discredited in order to be righteous and holy. And then they judge others according to that standard. Now, we could, you could give other examples. I had in my notes, and for the sake of editing, I, I removed it, but there were several similar quotes from the Roman Catholic uh, Church who adds many doctrines and rules and regulations. I see some of you nodding because you know those things very well. Now, Roman Catholic Church, the SDA, you know, they're at least honest and, and upfront and public about these beliefs. But how many other Christians will look down their pious noses and label something as sin that the Bible does not call sin? It's a sad irony that many who say they desire to abstain from worldliness have actually taken on and adopted a very worldly view of righteousness. Because our Lord Jesus here says, he, and he calls the crowd to him. I mean, this is all the way up until this point, the relationship with the crowd has been to heal them, to teach them, and then to dispatch with them. I mean, frankly, he and the disciples have been on a mission to avoid the crowds to some degree. 
And here he calls the crowd to him. Why do you suppose that is? Because this is important. It's critical. So here again, imagine all the black suburbans have just pulled up with this formal delegation saying your teacher is leading you astray. He's leading you into sin because you're not following the traditions of the elders and therefore you are defiled and you're not cleansing yourself from this defilement. And you're eating with these defiled hands. See, paganism, just rank paganism throughout history has taught that there is power in things, that there's power in substances, that there's power in inanimate objects, the rocks, the trees, or the Gentile dust on your feet or your hands. Well, that's a pagan idea. It's not a biblical idea. And so some Christians then have taken up this very worldly idea that righteousness comes by touch not, taste not. Because we mistakenly believe that power resides in a thing. That power resides in a substance. But what does our Lord say? What does our Lord say about the source of corruption? Verse 20. And he said, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, his list here is not exhaustive, but it's comprehensive, isn't it? Is there any, is there any one of the Ten Commandments that isn't touched upon here? The entire moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, the violation of every last one comes from within. The source of our defilement, the source of our corruption, is not the marketplace. We may have provocations there. We may fi- certainly will find temptations to sin in the marketplace. Amen? But that's not the source of the corruption, is it? So in what ways do you do the same thing? In what ways is your thinking shaped by a worldliness, a conformity to the world's thinking, rather than to the Scriptures? What have you called sin or unrighteousness that God has not? Either with respect to your own conscience, or you're ruling yourself in some way. And, and, and you've convinced yourself that something is sin when God has not said it's sin. Or what have you sought to impose upon someone else and said, this is unrighteous, when God has not said that? Brothers and sisters, what I want to set before you is that this is a grievous sin. It is a grievous sin to claim that something is sin that God has not said is sin. So for the Pharisees to come and say, your disciples, and by implication you, Jesus, are in sin because they're not not following our extra-biblical words, the tradition of the elders, it was a grievous thing. This is why Jesus drew the crowd to him and said, I want you to hear this. This is important. We must honor the word of God as sufficient 
as complete. See, it, it is, I think, fair to say that, that most Christians, certainly most conservative, Bible-believing Christians, would rightly and justly take offense if anyone stood up in the public place and declared something that God had plainly said is sin and then said, that's not sin. Now, sadly, that, that, that kind of dynamic abounds around us, doesn't it? Men stand up and say that two men can lawfully marry. Two women can lawfully marry. The Bible clearly says this is sin. Clearly. Repeatedly. And yet men stand and say, it's not sin. And rightly and justly, True Christians stand up and say, this is an assault on God's word, and we won't stand for that. But are we faithful and consistent to do it the other way around? When someone stands up in public and says, this is sin, and God has not said it's sin. This is against the righteousness of God, and God hasn't said that. Are we equally incensed? Are we equally concerned about that? Jesus was. He gathered the whole crowd to himself to teach them that very thing. So not only do the Pharisees misunderstand and misrepresent the true nature and the true source of corruption, but they also misunderstood and misrepresented the remedy for the problem. They misrepresented the remedy for the problem. They did not discern the true source of cleansing. Now recall in your minds the passages from Exodus 29 and 30. This wasn't only that they missed new revelation, that this was unique or new with Christ. God had always been the source of true cleansing. All these other things are what the writer to the Hebrews called types and shadows, things that were designed. The sacrificial system was designed to point people to the righteousness of Christ, to show them day by day by day that they were unclean by nature. And that that cleanliness, that defilement, could only be cured by God himself. Again, Mark is showing to us intentionally, repeatedly, that Jesus is the Yahweh who cleanses. He is the Son of God. So let's consider now in the second place the true source of cleansing. We've seen the true source of corruption. It's within. It's not without. Now, the true source of cleansing. See, the Pharisees believed not only that defilement or uncleanness or corruption came from outside of them, but they also believed that they could make themselves clean through rules and rituals. And so they had this elaborate system of washings. In fact, Mark tells us here, and this is unique to Mark's gospel, not only did they wash their hands, but he says they had a bunch of other things they did, such as washing cups and copper vessels and all these other things that they thought they could remove a defilement from them. Let's go back and look at the final paragraph of Mark 6 now. With these things in mind, this is not filler or fluff. It's not merely a transitional statement. Mark is making a very powerful theological argument. He's showing us that the cleansing work of Jesus Christ is the power of the Son of God. He is our great high priest. So when they cross over 
They come to the land of Gennesaret. They moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began bringing the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Now, this isn't new. We've seen this already in Mark's Gospel, where sick people were brought to Jesus. And ordinarily, what did he do? He touched them. All the way back in chapter 2. Chapter 1, I mean. He touches a leper. And what happens when he touches the leper? The clean does not become unclean. The unclean becomes clean. When he goes into Jairus' daughter, she's dead. And what does he do? He touches her. He takes her by the hand. Little girl, get up. And the clean does not become unclean. The unclean becomes clean. And we see that over and over again. Those who were, were, in, were possessed by unclean spirits, Jesus speaks to them. He touches them. And the unclean becomes clean. Well, who can do that? Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And so in verse 56 of Mark chapter 6, and wherever he came in villages, cities, and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. The very place that the Pharisees thought was the source of defilement. Jesus goes willingly, repeatedly into the marketplaces, touches sick people, and he does not become unclean. They become clean. They are healed. As many as touched even the fringe of his garment were made well. Now we saw this dramatically in the woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 long years. She was ceremonially unclean and could not be cleansed. Since she'd spent everything that she had on doctors and she was actually worse, not better. And she merely touched the hem of the Lord's garment and immediately the flow of blood ceased. She became clean dramatically illustrating for us the theological point that, that Mark is laboring to continue to press in upon us. That Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He is showing us the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is our great high priest. Now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the New Testament revelation unfolds, even after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus, His Spirit begins to work and teach the apostles, and through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, they write down the Word of God for us. And so, in Hebrews chapter 8, in Hebrews chapter 8, in the first six verses of that chapter, this is what we read. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So what is the writer to Hebrews saying? That all those things in the Old Testament, those things that God clearly did command with respect to sacrifices and ordinances and rules and rituals, those things had no efficacy in and of themselves. No man was ever cleansed by the blood of a goat or the blood of a bull or a peace offering or a burnt offering. No one was ever cleansed by those means. What was the cleansing? It was the grace of Yahweh. And those sacrifices were designed to teach and instruct the people and to prepare them for the great high priest who would come. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, he's come. He's here. And he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he's perfect. Now, the, the, the Apostle Paul presses in this very same concept, this very same idea with the church at Colossae, the, the Colossian church. And the Apostle Paul was, was pastorally, was very concerned about this church. In fact, he wrote to them a letter expressing his love for them. And, and he expressed in that letter that he understood that there was a temptation to seek righteousness that comes from rituals and rules and the denial of the body. He understood very well, personally, as a former Pharisee, both the appeal of such things, but also the ultimate inadequacy of such things. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Now, does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? They go in, they don't touch the heart, they come into a man's stomach and they're expelled. He says, do not touch, according, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Well, that's precisely what the Pharisees Admitted, this is the teaching of the elders that aren't being followed here. Paul makes this very clear and, and serious statement. These, these regulations, these do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you, do you want to know a cleansing? Do you want to know a, a purification from your sins? Then the source of that must be heavenly, not human. And, and, and it not being human excludes our own works and efforts our own rules and regulations, it also excludes all the doctrines and commandments of men. Paul knows that external rules and rituals have a strong appeal to the flesh. There's a certain sense of, I get to participate in my own righteousness. I get to participate in my own sanctification. I get to participate in my own cleansing. And that has a certain fleshly appeal, doesn't it? Because if we're honest... Don't we all want just a little credit? At least a little bit? 
But God's glory will not be shared. He will not share His glory with us or with anyone else. Paul, the apostle, is understanding and he's applying what Jesus is teaching here in Mark 6 and 7. That he is the only true source of cleansing. For those of you who are this morning who are not in Christ, on the authority of God's word, I, I have to tell you, you're unclean. From, from the moment that you were conceived into the womb, you were defiled. That from the moment you became a being, a human being, you were at enmity with God. And your flesh, your own flesh, the world around you, and even, sadly, many who profess Christ will tell you that the answer to that problem lies within you or lies within a system of rules and rituals by which you can improve yourself and earn your way back to God. But also in the authority of the Scriptures, you, you need to know and understand that only the cleansing work of the Lord Jesus Christ can atone for your sin. Only His blood can cleanse you. Only His perfect life lived on your behalf can establish your righteousness. And the glory of the gospel is that if you will believe that, then the infinite, full measure of the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to you by faith. And simultaneous to that, all of your iniquity, all of your defilement, all of your uncleanness, all of your sin is washed away. Hidden in the depths of the sea separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Those who touch Christ become clean. Those who abide in Him remain clean. The defilement of internal corruption has only one remedy, the cleansing work of our great high priest. And when we touch Him by faith, we become clean, we become holy. We become set apart for His use. May the Spirit of the living God give us understanding. May He help us to believe and rest in these things. And, and perhaps, repentance for us looks like forsaking our own righteousness. Repenting of, we know we have to repent of sin, but perhaps we have to repent of righteousness. Of self-righteousness. Of our own rules. Of the, of the, you know, we, we establish our own policy and then we pat on ourselves on the back when we meet the really low bar rather than resting in the righteousness of Christ. And perhaps he's convinced you today by his spirit that you've added to his word. You've taken to yourself rules and regulations that God doesn't give to you. Maybe you've imbibed them somewhere. Maybe you've inherited them, <laughs> traditions of men. Maybe you've invented them yourselves, may he give us the grace to meditate on the true source of corruption. That 
that all of our defilement, all of our sin comes from within. It's not something we touched in the marketplace that caused us to be defiled. We may be tempted sorely in the marketplace. Our flesh may be provoked in many ways. But James tells us very clearly, it is that which is within us. It's, a, it's our own inward desires that want to latch hold, grab hold of that sin. We know that Christ is the true source of cleansing. It is, it is only He who can deal with that. Now there's much in the text that I didn't touch upon today. You may be asking yourself, well, what is Corbin? What is that whole thing about next week? We'll, we'll touch upon that next week. Because I want to ask the question, I want to wrestle with the question, what happens if we get these wrong? The stakes are high. Our Lord Jesus made it clear the stakes were high. If we don't understand the true source of corruption and the, and the, and the true source of cleansing, what happens? What happens to an individual? What happens to a church? What happens to a religious community if these things are wrong? So that's the question we'll wrestle with next week. But for now, only, remember this, only the priestly work of the Son of God can cleanse us from inward corruption, defilement, and sin. And no man's effort no man-made religion can cleanse that corruption within. In fact, and we'll see this more next week, all it does is add to our corruption. That's the irony. The harder we try to scrub and cleanse our hands, the more we've added to our corruption. The more we've tried to heal ourselves, the sicker we become. May the Lord give us grace to hear and believe that which the Scriptures tell to us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that your word is clear and plain, that our Savior has made these things even clearer and plainer to us by both his words and by his actions. Lord, grant us the grace and the faith to believe the gospel of your Son. Lord, I pray for those present here today, even our own children, who have not yet believed upon the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears to see and to hear that our triune God is good and delights to show mercy and that he has done so through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you are applying that work of redemption to your people by the power of your Spirit who dwells within us and among us. We ask that you would bless us and keep us, conform us to the very image of your Son. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.